I'm going to explain what is required to live up to this goal of walking together with Christ. I'll show you that we must first build a relationship with Christ and how that enables us to build relationships in Christ. Amos, the third chapter, in verse 3, I won't take the time to turn there, but you can if you'd like, says, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? That would seem to be about as simple of a statement as you could possibly make, but it's a profound statement, and too often people don't understand. My wife and I had the opportunity, took the opportunity to go to a homeowners association meeting the other night to see what was going to happen, and I've been to a few of those in the past, but this was... uh, It set the record as far as uh, acrimony. Uh, Somebody attacked one of the board members immediately, called for his resignation, and he fired back. And then it really got ugly. And it wasn't long before three of the five board members quit, walked off. And one of the fellows that was left, one of the newer members, said, well, I guess I'm president. It shows how dysfunctional our society can be. It, uh, when two, walk, uh, two are not walking together, or if they're not agreed, they're not going to be able to walk together. And so often we fail to see the big issues, see the big picture. I wanted to stand up and say something that might be bring people together, but I figured the best thing to do is keep my mouth shut and observe and learn from the experience. The Apostle John addresses this subject of walking together, and quite directly, and I was a bit surprised when I started looking into it, I was familiar with these passages, but seeing how neatly they fit into the the theme of walking with God together and building relationships in Christ. Notice over in the book of John, the first chapter, we often look at this from the perspective that we have two members of the God family and that Jesus Christ was the God of the Old Testament, the one that made everything, the one that God used to make these things. In the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 1 of John, was the Word, and the Word was God, or the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. But notice beginning of verse 4, it says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This theme of light comes up over and over with John's writings. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He's talking about the fact that Christ brought light to the world, but the world did not comprehend it. We live in a darkened state, a state of conflict, of disregard for God's ways and his laws, But Jesus came to bring light to the world. 
says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man, John, came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light. John was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, speaking of the Logos, as we shall see, or as it says later on very clearly, it's talking about Jesus Christ. He says, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So the world did not comprehend the light that was coming into it. And as we all know, that light was rejected. In the first epistle or letter of John, toward the end of the Bible, not the gospel account of John, but the letter of John, First John, we see this same theme. We'll begin in verse 1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Now, John is pointing out here that this was not some sort of a phantom or something out of the imagination of their hearts, but they had seen him, they had touched him with their hands, they knew that this individual had lived. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So Christ was eternal life. He has eternal life, and he was manifested to us. That which, verse 3, we have seen and heard, we declare to you. So he mentions over and over again, we've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him. In fact, they had walked with him, as it were. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship. Notice this, that you may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So he's talking here about how you and I can have fellowship together, speaking to the people there that they can have fellowship with the apostles and with the the truth. But he says that our fellowship truly is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We cannot leave that part out of the equation. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, if we say that we are fellowshipping with God, with Jesus Christ, and for that matter really with one another, then he says we can't walk in darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here we find that truth is not something that is is just academic. It is how we live. The truth is a way of life. We must walk according to truth. So notice it says, and walk, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. And so when we talk about walking with God together, we must recognize that there are parameters to that. There are certain things that we must do. We must walk with Jesus Christ, with God the Father. 
We must be on the same page. We must be in agreement if we're going to have fellowship one with another. What does light mean in this context? Well, we're familiar with the 119th Psalm, which talks about and extols the law of God. But here in the 119th Psalm, in verse 105, it says, Your word, God's word, this book, the Bible that we have here, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It lightens our way. For those of you who maybe are visiting, I, I never, I'll be honest with you, I can't remember where I've told the story anymore. I've told some of these stories so many times in so many different places. So you have to humor some of us who are older. If we tell a story that you've heard before, just take a quick nap. <laughs> but up in the mountains here, there's a place called Linville Gorge. It's a, it's a beautiful place. I think that our young people would love to take a hike down into Linville Gorge, the bottom of the waterfalls. It's, it's a spectacular waterfall, quite high. Not Niagara Falls wide, but uh, quite high. And a beautiful waterfall. I didn't get that close to it, but I could see it. We were there not for sightseeing, but for fishing. But it's a long hike down there. And another friend and I were down there, and I was standing on a big rock in the middle of the river, kind of on the far side of the river, and it was starting to get dark. And right about that time, the reel on my fly rod came off, and it went in this deep hole. And so I wanted to get it out, of course, and so I started pulling on line. And with a fly rod, it doesn't take much pull to, to pull the line out. And I pulled all the way to the end. And then, of course, I had to wind it all back up. Well, when you are in an area at the bottom of a V, a very uh, large V at that, it doesn't take very long for it to get dark. And by the time I got that thing together, it was dark. And so I reached for my flashlight because I had to get back across the river. At least that was my hope. And I realized that I didn't have the flashlight. It was my partner who had the flashlight. We only had one. And so I had a big lighter, and I could see him up the, uh, the river some ways, a couple hundred yards, and he started to walk back to collect me. And I'd already decided I was going to stay right there on that rock all night if I had to because I was afraid of moving across that fairly fast river at that point. And in the rivers here, for those of you who have not fished in them, they have a lot of rocks, and you never know your next step, whether you're stepping off into an abyss or whether the rock is three feet high right in front of you and you can't see it. Maybe three feet is a little bit much, but... Uh, it's, it's very treacherous. And I decided it wasn't worth the risk. So I took my Bic lighter and I kept flashing it every once in a while, let him know where I was. And finally, he, uh, he showed up and handed a, a rod there. He came across a little ways and, and, uh, I was able to get back across and hike the two miles or whatever it was to the top again. I, all I know is real sore the next day. It's a long way. But when you can't see, you need a light to lighten your way. 
I remember another time up in Squaw Valley, my first feast ever. We were sleeping in a tent, and every once in a while you'd have to get up in the middle of the night. And without a flashlight, it would have been treacherous trying to walk down a path with roots and rocks where you could not see. He tells us that God's law is, or God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The law of God, that guides us in the way. And yet so many people think that they don't need that light, that they can live their lives any way they want to, and there are no bumps or scrapes or bruises, no being carried downstream and drowned or falling down and knocking yourself out or anything like that. We all know people who think that they can violate the laws of God and get away with it, and how many times they have to to do it to learn the lesson. I've known some that never seem to learn. They're like the billy goat that runs into this one of these brick walls here, these center block walls. And after it stops hurting a little while, they think, you know, if I hit a little harder, I think I could get through it. I've known people like that. They, as soon as they stop hurting, they go right back and they hurt themselves again. God's Word is a lamp to our feet. God's Word which is the expression of Jesus Christ, uh, is a lamp to our feet. It shows us the way. In Proverbs, the sixth chapter, Proverbs 6 and verse 20, it says, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. In other words, embrace God's laws, his commands, the commands from our fathers and our mothers. He says in verse 22, when you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when they awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Now, it is interesting here that the context that he makes these statements, uh, becomes clear a little bit later. He says, to keep you from the evil woman. Well, ladies, it also keeps you from the evil man. And in today's world, this is excellent advice. That God's laws will keep us from a whole world of hurt. There are people out here who have no regard for the law of God, who are willing to commit adultery or single, commit fornication, jump into bed with just about anybody. We call it the hookup generation. There isn't even dating as we once understood it. It's just go to a party, find somebody to hook up with, and then walk away as though that person means nothing to you, and we just become animals. And and this is the world that you are living in. It's all around us. If you go to university, you're confronted with it very quickly. Very quickly. It doesn't take long. Of course, you don't even have to go to university to be confronted with it. High school is bad enough. But this is the world in which we live. But he says that it's a a lamp to your feet. The law is a light. 
And he says, to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Yes, there are those who can give wonderful lines. Do not lust after her beauty. Yes, someone might be very beautiful. He might be handsome. He might have a great car and be a wonderful dancer. He says, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. Yes, maybe she bats her eyes a certain way. Or he has a cute smile. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. And we say would not be without punishment. There's a price to pay for immorality. And as we have singles here, it's important that you understand these things, that there's a way that is very different, God's way being very different. It's walking in light as opposed to doing whatever comes natural and then finding all the rocks and the roots and everything like that that are down the road that follow. In 1 John 2, 1 John 2, very familiar scripture. You might have memorized this. Perhaps you can quote it. But you know, quoting something is not the same as living it. I hope that if we can quote it, we also can live this way of life. It's far more important that we know what it says and live by it than our ability to quote, although I'm not denigrating the, uh, the fact that we can learn to memorize things. I think that's important. It says in verse 3, 1 John 2, verse 3, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Here's how we can know Christ. If we keep his commandments. So if we're going to walk with Christ, if we say that we know him, we must keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Remember the truth that we are to walk by, practicing the truth, as it says there in the first chapter, verse, uh, verse 6. He says, I know him and does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. And then in verse 6 it says, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So if we're going to have a relationship with Christ, we must walk as he walked. Dr. Meredith referred to the, um, uh, the, the little bracelet that people had, uh, what would Jesus do, W-J, whatever it is, the acronym, what would Jesus do? But he, he changed it to what would Jesus really do? Because there are people who use that expression that walk around with these bracelets and don't have a clue what Jesus would do. They simply think that whatever is in my mind, that's what Jesus thought. And so he gave that sermon. You could look that up by Dr. Meredith on what would Jesus really do. And that's so important. It's very important for you and for me to understand what would Jesus really do. Because we have to walk with him if we're going to be in fellowship with him. We have to walk in the light, not in darkness. 
We came to a time in the worldwide church, for those of you who are old enough to remember that, when people were not walking as Jesus walked. I remember a congregation that I was sent to, uh, a reasonably large congregation, as the church was getting off track, and I would say that it was no more than a large social club for many of the people who were there, not all. But many of the people had grown up in the church. They were second, third generation. And we had all kinds of tournaments and basketball, volleyball, and various other things, softball tournaments. And I saw some of the most carnal people I've ever run into. I saw people nose-to-nose screaming at each other, fathers, because of something that happened on the basketball court. We were not walking as Jesus walked. I say we. There were those who were not. There were a multitude of problems. We had a large number of girls. When I say a large number, I'll just say 14 of them that had gotten pregnant within a period of about two and a half years in the church. And they'd bring their little babies to church with them, and everybody would be ooing and aahing over them. They almost became celebrities. They looked on the church as something that you did one day a week. But come Saturday night, let's go to the clubs downtown for dancing. And almost all those, maybe all of those, I don't remember now, involve somebody outside the church. Not somebody in the church, but somebody outside the church. In other words, one was attending church and the other one was outside the church entirely. There were differences. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? Well, apparently, a lot of these girls agreed with the world more than they agreed with, with how Christ would live his life. Now, there were a couple choices we had in that situation. We could appeal to the carnal mind by coming down to their level, compromising trying to appeal to them, coming down to their level. Now, the Apostle Paul was a master of dealing with different cultures, and he said to those without law, I was without law, but not without law to God or to Christ. In other words, he understood that he had to maintain standards, but he he approached different people differently because of the different cultures they had. And to someone in a Jewish culture, he obviously would approach that individual very different from someone who is from Corinth. But the same standards applied, standards of right and wrong, were still relevant for the Apostle Paul and the way that he dealt with them. So we could appeal to the carnal mind, which is what a lot of people think, well, you have to kind of compromise and come down their level, and then you can lift them up. But what happens is that you end up rewarding bad behavior. The other approach, which would not discourage those who are trying to do it right, but to simply uphold the right standards and simply say that, look, this is the way you have a choice. You can walk in this way or you can walk in the other way, but we're not going to compromise with you on these things. You know, 
I, I think I probably made a mistake in spelling it out so clearly. But the point is that some things you can't compromise with. You simply can't compromise because what you do is you lose everybody. And I knew that we couldn't save everybody because they were not walking the same way. We could appeal to them. We could try to bring them along. But if somebody doesn't want to walk the same way, what are you going to do? Some would see this as being divisive. And I would agree. It is dividing. The question is, is that kind of division wrong? We normally think of division, division in the church as being a negative thing. But what does the Bible tell us in situations like this? Notice over in Joshua, the 24th chapter, again, a passage that you probably are very familiar with. Joshua 24. And we'll begin here. I'll just go here with um, verse 14. It says, Now therefore, fear the Eternal, serve Him in sincerity and in truth. This is what He told Israel. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river, and in Egypt serve the Lord, or the Eternal. Verse 15, Joshua 24, 15. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Eternal... Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amalekites, or I'm sorry, Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the eternal. Now the people professed that they would serve God, but we know that as time went by, they didn't. But he was putting before them a choice. You can serve the gods of the Amorites, the gods in Egypt, the gods on the other side of the Euphrates, or you can serve God. But as he said, as for me and my household, we will serve the eternal. I think it's even more telling in the New Testament. In Matthew, the 10th chapter, let's go to Jesus himself and see what he said, and try to understand what he was saying here. And verse 32, Matthew 10, and verse 32. He says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then he makes this statement that I think really would puzzle most people in the world. It should not puzzle us. I think we understand it. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Now, is he not saying there that he came to divide? Is it because Christ wants to divide? Well, he came as a light into the world, and the world did not want that light. He could have stayed out entirely, and where would we be today? He could have said, oh, I don't want to make any waves here. But, of course, it was part of his plan that he would come down, and, of course, that he would be put to death even to pay the penalty for our sins. But he came to bring a new way of life. He came with light. But he knew that it would only be the few who would accept it. The majority of the world has rejected that light. The Jews that he came to at that time rejected him, with only a few exceptions to that, especially at the beginning. And even down through history, mankind has perverted that gospel and that message. They perverted his way of life. They have perverted even the image of Christ. But we see here that he came, not because he disliked families, but because he knew that those who accepted his way of life would be separate from others. And so sometimes we have a choice. We can say that, well, we just try to save everybody, try to appeal to everybody, or we can say, this is the way we hope you'll follow. And sometimes that's about all you can do. They say, this is the way. We'll do our best to help you, but we're not going to compromise with truth. We face a number of divisive social issues today. I don't think there's ever been a generation, at least in modern any kind of modern times, I don't know, in the first century with Corinth, you read, it's pretty, um, pretty upside down and backward, but um, we face a world today that is so absolutely turned upside down and confused. We have this LGBTQ, actually LGBTTIQQ2SA plus, and I've left out P. I think that's, I don't know, I have not, pan, pansexual or something, I don't know. It's, they, they keep adding letters to it. But if we think that is not influencing some of our people, we may be mistaken. As I wrote an article that will be coming out, it's, a, it's an editorial and a, a cool heads sometimes take things out of these articles. Uh, I, I assume this will make it in it, this part, but we, we do have a wonderful editorial staff and we appreciate the fact that we have wisdom that will uh, try to keep us out of trouble as much as possible. Um, to give you an idea when I say keep you out of trouble, the written part is not so, so critical, but for television, uh, Mr. Smith, that awful Mr. Smith, was was uh, he was censored in Australia. Uh, why would he be censored? Well, because he said that uh, pornography and abortion are sins. That's all it takes. Pornography is a sin. I guess I kind of understand the controversy of, of uh, abortion. 
But is it controversial that pornography is sin? We're getting to the place where we can hardly say anything on some stations. Thankfully, most stations we get through the statements we make. But the U.K. was pretty tough for a while. They've kind of lightened up. Australia right now is our most difficult station. It's interesting that somebody from Australia says, I wish you'd be stronger. I don't think I'm going to watch you anymore because you're not direct enough. Well, that's my next editorial for Tomorrow's World. Um, but that we, we live in a very interesting world, don't we? We live in a world where drugs, marijuana, especially right now, have become controversial even in the church. There are those individuals who would say, well, it's natural. Well, so is tobacco and so is poison ivy. But do we want to smoke those things? A lot of things are natural. And then we hear all about medical marijuana. Well, once it's all legalized, we probably won't hear much about medical marijuana after that. It's about 98% ruse to legalize it. That's about what it's all about. I'm not saying there aren't medical purposes that maybe uh, that actually are known, but it's not the hallucinogenic part of it that's, that's beneficial. But we have people, I hope that they're not our members. Mr. McNair mentioned we have some interesting calls, but I do know we do have members that, that push back, that don't agree with the church on this subject. We have young people, some singles. I don't know any of you who are here that fall in this category. I haven't talked to everybody here yet. Who look at alcohol as something to party with instead of something to enjoy over a meal. It's just, uh, let's go get wasted. Let's, let's have a good time. Fornication and living together outside of marriage is something that I think some people think, young people think, well, the old, old folks just don't understand. And older folks think that, well, that was written for young people, we're exceptions. I've seen that as well. Pornography is a major problem in our world. And if we think it doesn't affect the church, we're mistaken. It does. I don't know who you are, but I would guess that there are people right in this room that are addicted to pornography. Because we have over 300 people here. And the odds are that some are. And we know that there are people in the church who've got problems that way because it comes out, either in marriage counseling or sometimes somebody gets addicted to it and they say, I need some help. Well, we, we always respect people who want help. And we do our best to encourage them, not to condemn them, but to help them out of that problem. But pornography is a huge issue. I just read an article this morning about uh, Snapchat uh, by a fellow that, that points out that really none of our teenagers ought to be on Snapchat. Probably nobody should be. But it's the most popular one, I guess, now among young people. So you can post a picture there, and after a short time, it just disappears. So sexting is very common on Snapchat. 
And now they have a, a new site on there of some sort, or it's talking about, well, I, I can't even use the language. Uh, but bottom line is it's promoting even more pornography. And when the CEO of Apple and various other high-ranking individuals in social media are saying, this is not for my kids, as this article pointed out, that's like going into a restaurant and the chef says, have this food, but I wouldn't feed it to my family. I hope all of you have read the article on social media. And I hope you'll be up to date on what is being said out there. And parents need to be parents and need to have the courage to say no to some of these things. The damage is very great, Mr. Uh, Hall's sermonette. Talk about face-to-face communication. Mr. Rod McNair had an article, I believe it was Mr. Rod McNair, on FaceTime. And uh, you might want to look that up. But what we have is, is a media medium that is not where people really look face-to-face. Oh, yes, they might see each other on Skype or something. But it's not the same as sitting down and communicating with someone. And we find that more people are depressed. And the more they are into social media, the more depression they have. It's a sad state. Dating outside the church is another issue. We have people who date outside the church. And they don't have the same values in general. Now, I've often heard people say, well, people in the church are worse than those in the world. Okay, there are probably examples of that. But from what I see, we have a lot of wonderful young people and not so young who value God's way of life. And I really want to encourage that way of life for all of you. I remember a a woman up here in the mountains was new in the church, went to the Feast of Tabernacles, was back in worldwide days, and when she came back, she was hopping mad. She said she went out on a date with a different person every night during the feast. Somebody else asked her out. She nice-looking gal and had a lot of dates. And she said every one of them had Roman hands and Russian fingers. And she said they were all baptized members. I can't blame her for being upset. And angry. I don't think that that is the general dating scene that we have here in the Living Church of God. But I hope we we don't get into it because there are always exceptions who think that dating the world's way is okay. But that's not walking in the light. That's not walking with Christ, and it's not going to bring harmony amongst our single scene. There are such things as uh, interracial dating in marriage. And I'm not going to get into that other than to say, stop and think, who's promoting it? Who's promoting it? It's a question that people need to ask. Now, there are examples of those who truly did walk with God. As an example, let's go to Genesis, the fifth chapter. Genesis 5. And verse 24. 
I'm sorry, verse 22. It says, After he begat Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. Wow, walking with God for 300 years. We can't even hope to be alive for a third of that time. But he walked with God for 300 years. He walked in the light. He walked according to the law of God. And there was a law of God even then. Notice verse 24. It says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So God allowed him to die a relatively young man. I think, was it 365 years? Uh, Yeah, 365 years. So 65 years, apparently he wasn't walking with God, but for 300 years he did walk with God. That last 300, apparently. So God took him. Took him out of that violent world. A world where there was no way he could be in harmony with those around him if he was walking with God. It was a different way of life. In the sixth chapter, verse 9, says, This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And so Noah's life was spared and that of his family because he walked with God. There was a reward to it. And there's a reward for you and me if we are willing to walk with God. If we continue walking with God, there's a reward for us, both now and in the future, for all of eternity. There are great rewards. Abraham was called the friend of God. Notice 2 Chronicles 20. 2 Chronicles, the 20th chapter. And we'll notice verse 7. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? That's a relationship. That's what we want to have. We want to have that relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ forever. But we also want it with one another, don't we? I don't know anybody that we don't want to be a part of the family of God. Anybody here, you might, maybe, I don't know. There are some really crazy people out there, and you might be struggling with that. Do I really want that person in the kingdom, like Hitler or whatever? But um, I guarantee if he is there, he'll have a changed attitude by then. He'll learn to walk with God. But I think that all of us want each other to be there. I want my wife to be in the kingdom. I want all of you to be there. And we want to have that oneness where we walk together in unity. Let's notice over in the New Testament, in James, the second chapter. Again, just a quick statement here that... About Abraham, James 2, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. I can't imagine a better description 
than being the friend of God. And you know what? If we're walking in the light, as Christ is in the light, we are his friends. Notice what it says over in the book of of, uh, John. Getting ahead of myself here, but that's okay. John 15. John 15 and verse 14. Jesus said this to his disciples, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So if we're walking in the light, not perfectly, none of us is perfect, but our direction that we're going is walking in the light. We've got the flashlight of God's law there. We're walking down a path that is in the direction that God wants us to go. He says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So as I look out here, I perceive that there are a lot of friends of God in this room. Does that apply to everybody? Who knows? But if we're walking in the light, it applies to to you and to me. Again, we're under grace. We don't do things perfectly, but we strive to do things God's way. We're not at variance with God. In James, the fourth chapter, James 4, what I'm trying to point out here is that each of us must make a choice as to whether our foot is in the church or in the world because too many try to straddle the fence. James 4 and verse 4, he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now this is very important because young people growing up in the church have to come to that decision. Which which world do they want to be in? Do they want to walk in the light or do they want to walk in darkness? And some of you who have grown up in the church know exactly what I'm talking about. And you've come to the place where you said, you know, I've got to make a choice. And this is the way I want to go. Now some make the choice to go outside, go into darkness, and they get beat up a little bit, and many of them come back. Some never do. Very encouraging to see when I was uh, visiting out in the Midwest here uh, this past week for the Sabbath and Pentecost to see some people that had been out for a long time but are back and to see that they've made the right choice in the end. It's very good to see that. In 1 John 2, 1 John 2, again a very familiar scripture, Verses 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So he says, The world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. There is a reward if we are walking with God 
walking in the light, there's a reward of eternal life. And I don't care how old you might be, the end comes. The end does come. And I've known some people over the years who had that attitude that uh, it sounded so smart when I was young. Somebody said, and I probably repeated a few times uh, myself, that, well, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to just live the way I want to, but when I get to the end, I'm going to repent or I'm going to uh, to change. The problem is that sometimes those people are not able to. By the time they figure it out, they don't have the health, they don't have the mental capacity to make that choice. Sometimes that, that happens. Sometimes people do have time. God is very merciful. But I've known a few that decided, as some of my friends would talk about, I'm just going to do whatever I want to, seeing that walking in darkness was fun, not realizing all the penalties that you pay for it. But they would have a deathbed repentance, as they say. Uh, there's a story about W.C. Fields, someone who's, for anybody younger than, what, 80? <laughs> uh, you I, I, I've seen W.C. Fields on a few, but, but nothing any time recently. Um, he was an agnostic at best, maybe an atheist, and the story is, and it wasn't necessarily a true story, but he was seen on his deathbed reading the Bible, and somebody asked him why he was reading that, and he said, well, he was looking for a loophole. And how often people do that. They look for a loophole at the end. If you know the truth... You can't postpone doing what's right. As I mentioned, I recently read an editorial, wrote an editorial for the Living Church News. It hasn't been uh, totally reviewed yet, but I described how some people have one foot in the church and the other foot in the world. And most of those who see themselves that way, and I've heard uh, young people who have grown up in the church actually explain this, how they had to come to repentance. I've heard more than one explain it that way, but most probably view themselves as having one foot squarely in the church and they just have their toe dipping in the world a little bit. But you know, the truth of the matter is probably that one foot is squarely planted in the world and it's the toe that they still have in the church just in case. Now, whatever the weight may be on each leg, It's not a good thing to do, especially if the boat is leaving the dock, slipping away, because uh, straddling the fence is not a good idea. It doesn't work too well. James describes such a person in the first chapter. Let's notice in James 1. James 1, beginning in verse 5. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man uh, suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So here's a person that it isn't just that he, he has certain doubts, he's... Uh, as commentaries show and as he describes a little bit later on, he, 
he's a double-minded man. And notice what it says. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The New Bible Commentary Revised says this of uh, the statement being double-minded. He says he is aptly termed a double-minded man, for in a sense he is a divided personality, a man with two souls. Now, he's not talking about an immortal soul here. He's talking about two you know, basic, inherent, uh, uh, well, I don't know how to describe it. Anyways, two souls. It's not talking about an immortal soul here. Uh, as the New Bible Commentary uh, brings out elsewhere, that uh, the Bible simply doesn't talk about an immortal soul. It, it nowhere gives that, that information or that, that doctrine. But he's a divided personality, a man with two souls. He ought to love the Lord with all his one soul. James obviously has no room for compromise. Notice also in the fourth chapter of James, I'll begin reading in verse 1. But he says, where, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your number, members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Whether the murder is, is literal, uh, it would seem from the context that he's not talking about literally killing, although who knows, uh, and, and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask but do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And then as we read earlier, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, he says. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the, the Lord, and he will lift you up. And then in verse 17, it says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. I've heard people say that, well, I don't have to do that because I'm not baptized. Notice it says, to him that knows to do good. It doesn't say to him that is baptized. To him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. And what is the penalty of sin? It's eventually death but usually a lot of pain and suffering along the way. And 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 18, we have the situation with Elijah, the prophet, and he'd come, had come along at a time in Israel when Israel was going badly astray and God brought him in there to, to challenge Ahab, and the direction of the nation. And so here in 1 Kings 18 and verse 21, Elijah came to all the people and said, this is after they were all gathered together, how long halt you between two opinions? In other words, why are you double-minded? If the eternal is God, follow him. 
but if Baal, follow him. But notice the people answered him, not a word. They were so conflicted. They were so double-minded at that point. They wanted God, but they also wanted Baal. And so they brought the worship of Baal into the worship of God, or attempted to. It's the same thing we have today. And what is called Christianity, they, they have the trappings of, uh, in the terminology, the words of Christ and the Bible, and uh, they, they quote the Bible and they read the Bible in certain portions. They twist it and they turn it. Uh, to turn it, but mostly they just neglect uh, what doesn't agree with them. But then they have Christmas and Easter and all these other things that are brought in there. It's the same thing that was happening back then. And he's saying, look, you are double-minded. He said, make a choice. When it says, how long do you falter between two uh, opinions, the, the sense of it in the original is, how long do you hop between two forks? There's a fork in the road, and you keep wanting to go back and forth, and at some point, you get so far divided that you're going to go one way or the other. But they didn't want to follow God. They wanted to follow the world, the world that was around them. In Matthew 6, and verse 24, Matthew 6, and verse 24, it says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or riches. Now, we can extrapolate from that a principle that would apply in this case. You can't serve two masters. You can't walk in darkness and light at the same time. You're either walking in light or you're walking in darkness. We have to make a choice which way we're going to go. In Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, Deuteronomy 30, this is a scripture that I used to read at our summer camp. And I would read it in the following context I'll I'll give here. We're familiar with the passage. I'll begin in verse 15, Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. It says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And then I command you today to love the eternal your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and the eternal your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. And so the verse that we often have memorized, verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Life and, and blessings, those good things, that's one side or curses and death, that's on the other side. He says, therefore, choose life. So God gave them a choice. He allows mankind to make a choice, but he encourages us to make the right choice. He says, and a blessing curse, therefore, choose life. Why? That both you and your descendants may live. 
Now, it's interesting here that it says that you and your descendants may live. And so I, I tried to appeal to our young people there that if you choose to be a hypocrite, if you choose to live one way around the ministry and around the church, but another way on the side, and you have a younger brother or sister, they're going to see what you're doing, aren't they? And they're going to pass that approach down to their next generation, two years away or whatever it might be. And they're going to pass it down and pass it down and pass it down. And one day you're going to get married and you're going to have kids and you're going to send them off to summer camp. And you may find that the hypocrisy that you promoted has come back to bite you. In other words, we're talking about, in the church of God, a culture. What is the culture of the church of God? And that culture is going to continue for a period of time. And if we build the right culture today and nurture that right culture, it's going to continue on down to another generation, perhaps, we hope. But if we set the wrong example today, we think that, well, I can break these laws, I can do this, I'm having fun, I'm having a wonderful time, but boy, when I have kids, am I going to be strict with them? You know who some of the strictest parents are? The most wild people when they were young. And, and they have the attitude that, boy, I'm not going to let my kids make the same mistakes I made. Well, you know the best way to make sure your kids don't make those mistakes is try to create a culture within the church of God, that is walking in light. And I, I think that's one of, the, one of the best things that we have going for us right now. I, I have to say that I've been very pleased overall with what I've seen in our young people, especially here in, in Charlotte, but I know some elsewhere, but especially here in Charlotte, partly because I'm more familiar with you now. I don't know you that well. But at least on the surface, you're, you're, you're looking good on the surface. I hope that... Uh, I, I know everybody has a double life. I understand that to some degree. But, you know, when we do it right and we create this culture of, of walking in light, that goes down through the years. And if you create a culture of darkness where you're, you have one foot in the church and one foot in the world... That's going to continue on down until somebody stops it, if anybody can stop it, and it'll come back to bite you when you have kids because they'll pick up on the culture that you helped to establish. What is it that we hope to accomplish in these brick weekends, family weekends, and in various other activities? What is it that we are trying to do how are we trying to help you? Because that's what we're trying to do. Uh, you know, those of us who are older, those of us who are in the ministry, we know what we want to do. We, we've made certain decisions. Uh, so why would we be concerned for you? Well, we care for you. We care for the church. We care for the future of the church. We care for the, the kingdom of God and how many will be in it and, and how great your reward might be. But what is it that we hope to accomplish? Well, when I was uh, 
the director of the, the summer camp for a number of years. I worked with summer camps for about 25 years, but actually 26, I guess. But um, when I was director, I, I created a, a mission statement and went over it with a few others and also set a goal for us. And I'd like to read what that is because I think it applies in a broader context within the church. Our mission statement for the camp was to bring teens together in a learning environment. Now, you notice that, and I had nothing to do with developing this program, but you'll notice it's based on education. You've got these brick talks, for example. You have Sabbath service. You have other, other opportunities. But you also have some activities that help you to socialize and, and get to know one another and all that is, is wonderful and great. But you'll notice that we've put, in the Living Church of God, we put much more emphasis on a learning experience so that it isn't just a, uh, a family weekend or, let's say, a ski weekend and we throw a Bible study onto it. It is a learning environment, and we might have a morning or afternoon of skiing or something. Uh, it, it's putting the cart before the horse. Um, cart before the horse? It's putting the horse before the cart, okay? Uh, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to do the, the important things first. We have very few opportunities to really work with you in, in these ways. We're speaking of our singles, our young people, and some of you aren't so young as singles, and that's fine. But it gives us the opportunity to work with you to try to nurture uh, this way of life that, that God sets before us. And so to bring teens or to bring singles, we might say, together in a learning environment for the purpose of recapturing true values, the real values, the values that, of the way that Christ walked when he was on this earth, and to further the creation of a culture of purity, honor, and respect among the youth within the living church of God and society as a whole. I would correct, change the society, but... Um, a, a culture of purity, honor, and respect. You know, you can take a, a bottle of pure water and then dump a little bit of uh, organic material into it uh, from a mud puddle out in your front yard or whatever, or a little bit of poison. It, it, it started out pure, but it doesn't take long to pollute it. Now, when, the word purity doesn't always sound so wonderful. We actually read it in Scripture here today. I forget exactly where it was, but... To, to young people, purity sounds, oh, that, that's, that sounds religious. Well, when it comes to water, you want purity, don't you? And so we want to create a culture of purity, honor, and respect. When we say honor and respect, we mean we have a, an internal honor code by which we respect one another so that the guys respect the girls, and the girls respect the guys. We live in a world where respect has been lost. And it's just, what can I do to get for myself? We want a culture in the church so that when you go off to the Feast of Tabernacles, you're not going to come back like this one lady who is hopping mad because every date she had was with someone who wanted something from her without all the respect that goes along with it, without the commitment that goes along with it. So we want 
to create a culture. And that culture means that it involves many people. And the larger this culture can be, the, the better it is for everyone. I'll have to tell you honestly, and I get in trouble for this sometimes when I say these things, we're not going to have everybody on board with us. I wish we did. But we're not going to compromise and honor bad behavior in order to try to get everybody on board with us. No, we're going to say this is the standard, this is the way we want to live, this is what we're holding up for for everyone, and we hope you'll get on board. As for me and my house, we'll serve the eternal. That's what Joshua said. And Jesus said that not everybody would be aboard. And that's what would cause the division among the family. His way of life was to walk in light. And when you walk in light, others don't like it. It's too bright. It's shining in their eyes. And they're going to say, I want to cause problems for you. And that's what happens in a family because some are walking in light and some are not. And some of you have experienced that. Some of you have been rejected by family for the things you believe. Now, sometimes we bring it upon ourselves by a lack of wisdom. I understand that. But even if you do things perfectly as Christ did, you still have people that want to kill you. Uh, They wanted to kill Christ. They did because he was walking differently from the Jews of his day and from the rest of the world. Now, we have a goal. That's the mission statement. Now we have a goal. We expect that out of this culture of purity, honor, and respect will come godly relationships. Interesting. I, I, I pulled this up from the past, but godly relationships. What's the theme for our, our weekend here? I'll make sure I state it right. Walking with God together. Building relationships in Christ. And so I said, we expect that out of this culture of purity, honor, and respect will come godly relationships that will lead to loving marriages and strong families that will provide stability and future leadership in the living church of God and in society as a whole. In other words, being good neighbors, being uh, good workers, and so forth, and in society in general. In other words, we're going to be an asset to this world in a, you know, when I say the world, in Wherever part of the world we're in, we set a good standard for others. But it's only as we have loving marriages and strong families that the future is secure for the church. And so we encourage our young people to choose this way of life, to choose to live in light, not to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. It's not going to work, as some have learned. You will either love the one, hate the other, or hate the one, love the other. It's, it's, you, you can't live in two worlds. You've got to make that choice. And that means that you have to look at the law of God and say, okay, I may not understand it, I might not get it, but I'm going to choose that way. I trust God that he knows what he's talking about. When he says that... Um, Fornication, as an example, is a sin against your own body. We understand it. We, we may not understand it, but we believe it. In Psalm 1, 
In the first psalm, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Notice he doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Right now, you've got all kinds of influences in school, in the media, all throwing this stuff at you, promoting a worldly way of life, trying to convince you that they know something that the Bible doesn't know, trying to convince you the behaviors that God call an abomination are things that people just can't help. They're just born that way. Um, trying to convince you that, you know, tobacco may be bad, but uh, go ahead and put something else in your lungs. Turn your lungs into a chimney. And somehow that's going to be good because it's natural. He says, nor they stand in the path, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. You have the person who walks in the counsel of the ungodly. He eventually stops and stands in the path of sinners and eventually sits down along with the scornful, those who reject God's ways. He says, this individual who doesn't choose that way, his delight is in the law of the eternal. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. We have the opportunity to prosper in God's way. And we're not talking financially. We're just talking about prospering in all the the things that we do. That God will bless us in our actions and the results of them. We have a unique calling. Every one of us in this room has a unique calling to be a pioneer of a better way. Now, some of you are already doing that, and others may not. I don't know, but others may not. But I just want to make sure that we understand. We can't live in two worlds. We have to choose. You have to embrace that better way. It's not something that you just automatically live. You have to embrace that way. You have to say, this is the light. I'm going to walk in it. I'm going to stop walking in darkness. And you have to embrace that better way. I challenge each of you to build your relationships with Christ. That you may learn how to walk together with God. If you do so, you'll be richly rewarded now in this life and in the life to come.